morning, friends. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask now that you would indeed speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word. Where our flesh is weak, where our mind is weak, we pray, Father, that you, by the power of your spirit, would indeed show yourself to us, that we may know you, that we may love you, and that we may continue to find our life in you, we pray. Amen. In his book entitled The Era of the Narcissist, Aaron Kirate points out one of the unique features of our time and contrasts that to times before us. One of the amazing features of the medieval times, and particularly the construction of medieval cathedrals, stands to be something that the modern mind has a hard time getting around. We have no idea who many of the architects or builders of these majestic cathedrals are. And the reason why we don't know is because the architects and the builders didn't sign their name on the cornerstone. They didn't think it important enough to recognize or to have themselves recognized in the building of these things that would last hundreds upon hundreds of years. Now that seems to be rather far afield from the Western mindset. People today might ask, why would you build the cathedral at Notre Dame if you can't take credit for it? No lasting fame? No immortalized human glory? We're perplexed by the humility of those forgotten artists who labored in obscurity. Do and disappear? That is not the modern American way. All of this humility began to change during the period of the Enlightenment. For example, when Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote his book entitled Confessions in 1789, he dedicated the book to, quote, me, with all of the admiration that I owe myself. The book opens with these lines. I have entered upon a performance which is without example, whose accomplishment will have no imitator. I mean to present my fellow mortals with a man in all the integrity of nature, and this man shall be myself. Contrast that with the words of the 4th century Christian thinker Augustine, who also wrote a book entitled Confessions. But rather than giving glory to himself, he gives all glory to God. As in his opening line from the book of Psalms, Great thou art, and greatly to be praised. As much as we might admire Augustine's humility, many of us would think that Rousseau's language sounds much more familiar to us today. To me, with all admiration to myself, this is the dedication that would look right at home today with our television stars, with our sports heroes, even with many of us on social media. The pursuit of recognition and the pursuit of human praise and the pursuit even, to some extent, of glory is a pursuit that Jesus has been addressing at different points throughout the Gospel of John. 
And today we come to a passage which at first reading might seem rather difficult to us to try to understand, but when it's framed in its rightful place with the recognition of pursuit of glory at hand, we begin to see a little bit more clearly what he is trying to do. So look with me at John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. Gospel of John chapter 7, starting at verse 1, says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The Feast of the Booths was one of the major Jewish festivals that drew people from all over the known world. Essentially, it was a harvest festival. Every day, people would give burnt offerings in the temple, and on the eighth day, there was a grand ceremony, and it was called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, because the people who celebrated it set up temporary housing during the time of the festival. They would set up small, lean-to type of dwellings with sticks and branches and leaves. 
And these dwellings, or booths, or tabernacles, became one of the defining features of this particular festival. And so six months after the Passover, and after Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6 on the bread of life, we arrive now at the next festival, the next backdrop for his exploration into the nature of true belief and the examples of unbelief. And at first glance, it's a little bit difficult to see what's going on here in John chapter 7. Why the argument with his brothers, and then the argument with the Jewish leaders, and what's underneath these types of interactions, and how are they all held together? Well, the key to understand what's going on here is to remind yourself of the purpose of John's gospel. You've heard me say it a number of times. You've heard it expressed in a number of different ways. John 20, 31, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you might have life in his name. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. This, in John chapter 7, is an account about belief and unbelief. And we consider first that one of the most striking features of this interaction is how the two different groups of people are thinking about Jesus' miracles in opposite ways But it leads them both to the same place eventually. His brothers and the Jews are thinking differently about the miracles of Jesus, and they both end up in places of unbelief. The most striking, of course, is his brothers. The very brothers of Jesus. Of course, these are his biological half-brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, all of them younger than he was. The ones who had seen what he was doing, who had heard his teaching, who had witnessed the miracles. It says... Verse 2, we read it a moment ago, the Feast of Booths at Hands. His brother said to him, leave here and go up to Judea, that your disciples also might see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then that important phrase in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Seems kind of bizarre. They say a bunch of really important things of support for him. And immediately, the narrator comment is they didn't believe in him. (laughs) His own younger brothers didn't believe in him. They had seen and heard and believed the miracles, but they didn't believe in him. To them, their older brother could do phenomenal things, amazing things miraculous things, and they were sure that the way that he was going to become the true up-and-comer in Jerusalem, the effective influencer of the society, the next celebrity religious leader in Jerusalem, that everybody needed to see the miracles that they were seeing. So verse 4 indicates he needed to go so that he could be known openly. But that desire of theirs is immediately followed 
by that striking phrase. For not even his brothers believed in him. For, or they said this because they didn't believe in him. They believed in his miracles. They speak very glowingly about what he's doing. But the way that they believed indicated that they did not believe in him. You'd expect him, I mean, you'd expect Jesus to receive the types of praise or, or, or encouragements that they're giving. I mean, after all, the Jews are trying to kill him, and this is pretty good by way of comparison. But their desires point to their unbelief. Why? Well, I think the key to understanding why is found in their motive. Their motive was fame. If Jesus would only become more known, then he could leverage his popularity into further recognition and further recognition into greater power, greater power for himself, and maybe, maybe even just greater power for those around him, like his brothers. Their unbelief is rooted in a craving for recognition. Recognition for Jesus, and by extension, recognition for themselves. I mean, if one of your family members makes it big, it shines well for the whole family name. The theme of glory-seeking comes up again. This is the second time in the Gospel of John that we've seen it. But this is the first time that we've seen it for people who are even for Jesus. You would expect to see the theme of glory-seeking from the ones who are lining up against him. But you wouldn't expect it to see, or to see it from the ones that are supporting him. Now, seeking praise from people is a powerful, powerful motive, isn't it, for all of us? We all desire praise from people. And if you say, Nick, I don't think that's my, my deal, I say, bull. Everybody loves it. You love it, and I love it. And there's a fine line between enjoying encouragement and going out of your way to seek praise from others. I mean, the first is natural and even a needed part of our human experience, isn't it? We all need to be encouraged from time to time. But when that need or desire becomes so pervasive in us that what we say and what we think and what we do is all in positioning ourselves to have praises heaped upon us because our addiction to such praise is so powerful, well, this is dangerous. It's so dangerous, in fact, that it is an indicator of unbelief in Jesus. And we know that because of what we see in verses 6 and 7. So look at it with me. They're telling him to go up. They want everybody to be known. They want him to be famous. Show these things. Show yourself to the world, they say. And Jesus says to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works 
are evil. You go ahead and go up to the feast. Jesus says his time has not yet come. His time, of course, is talking about the time in which he will be more widely known, not as famous, but rather as infamous, as he's lifted up on the cross for all to see. But their time is always here, he says to his brothers. This is so because the world doesn't hate them. Why doesn't the world hate them? Because they're just like the world. You see, the sinful desires of fame-seeking are the rules by which the world plays by in a lot of ways. And his brothers are just like the world in this way. So their time to go up is always here. Nobody's going to hate them. Nobody's going to persecute them because they're just like everybody else. They love it to be recognized. But the world hates Jesus because he testifies to what it does. The world will always hate to have its evil exposed. And here, part of that evil is self-glory. Perhaps you've heard of the account, the historical account of King Louis XIV of France. In 1717, King Louis XIV died. He preferred to be called Louis the Great. And he was the monarch who declared, boldly and confidently, I am the state. His court was the most magnificent in Europe, and his funeral was the most spectacular. And in the church where the ceremony was performed, his body lay in a golden coffin. And to dramatize his greatness, orders had been given that the cathedral would be very dimly lit with only one special candle that was to be set above the coffin. Thousands of people were in attendance, and they all waited in silence for the service to begin, staring up at the coffin with the candle right on top. And then Bishop Massilian began to speak, and as he did, slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle. And said this, only God is great. Eventually Jesus goes to the feast, but not the way they told him to go. He doesn't go when they told him to go. He doesn't go publicly. It says he went in private. He doesn't go to perform miracles. Instead he goes to teach and he doesn't go to seek glory for himself, but he repeatedly seeks to glorify the Father who sent him. Now, friends, there's probably a lot of things that we could say here about our own pursuits of human praise. We love it. We are inclined to seek it. But if you begin to crave it in your heart, then you will be left wanting, and it will be impossible for you to see Jesus clearly. His own brothers were with him. <laughs> and they didn't believe in him because they couldn't see him clearly. So you might say that seeking your glory will always lead to unbelief. But seeking God's glory is the beginning of belief. I think that's what Jesus is getting at it. This part of the account. 
Seeking your own glory will always lead to unbelief, but seeking God's glory is the beginning of belief. And with that, we look to the second form of unbelief, and it's much to be expected in some ways. Jesus does go up to the temple. He does begin to teach. The pe- it says that the people were grumbling about him. Some claimed that he had a demon, that he was leading people away. Others were trying to kill him. And they were trying to kill him because of what happened just a couple of chapters ago in John chapter 5. You might remember it. Jesus healed a, a lame man on the Sabbath day. And so it says that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, John 5, 18. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And so Jesus goes into the temple and he has this interaction with the Jews that is a little bit confusing toward the end, but let's shed some light on it. He reminds them of the fact that they're trying to kill him and why. And in doing so, he points out the hypocrisy that they have in it And by pointing out his hypocrisy, he's revealing, essentially, their unbelief. This is what he says. Look at verse 21. He says, I did one work. He's talking about the healing. I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what's going on there? Well, periodically, in the practice of Jewish law, two laws would come into contradiction with one another, and a decision would have to be made about which law was going to take precedence, which law was going to follow uh, the law that they were actually giving precedence. And so, in this case, Jesus refers them to the laws regarding the Sabbath and the laws regarding circumcision. Now, the laws regarding the Sabbath are nobody should work on the Sabbath day. It should be a day of rest and devotion to God. And the laws regarding circumcision were that a Jewish male boy should be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. But what happens if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath. Should they break the laws of the Sabbath by working and circumcise the boy? Or should they break the law of circumcision and observe the Sabbath and circumcise the boy on the ninth day or the seventh day? Which one should have precedence? Well, Jesus indicates by his response that they gave circumcision precedence. And they did so because not only was circumcision a sign of the covenant that predated the Mosaic law, but it was also considered a perfecting rite. One member of the body was perfected by performing this rite. And to be perfected, it had to happen on the eighth day. So stick with me. This is where Jesus is. All this dialogue is going. They give preference or precedence to the perfecting act for one part of the body in violation of the Sabbath. Then how much more should God be praised 
if Jesus perfects someone's entire body on the Sabbath. Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath in some ways is a fulfillment of circumcision. It's, we're making not just one part of his body perfect, we're making all of him perfect. And this is where these two acts of unbelief fit together. The brothers seek praise by being near to the famous miracle worker and thus revealing their glory seeking and their unbelief. The Jews reject the miracles in the name of law-keeping, but reveal their motives for self-glory because they don't seek the spirit of the law consistently, but rather they just want the external standard of the law. Pursuing your glory will always lead to unbelief. Seeking God's glory will lead to the beginning of belief. And so we see in the middle of this dialogue how all of these things start to come together. How the battle of the wills occurs. And how our motives, particularly for glory seeking or human praise, meet in a desire to know God with regard to the battle of our will. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And there's amazement at how somebody like him could say the things that he's saying. How could he be so learned that he didn't go to school? He didn't study. He wasn't trained as a rabbi. They have a long, rigorous training. Jesus wasn't trained in that way. And yet his teaching displayed phenomenal insight. And so Jesus answered to them, my teaching, verse 16, is not mine, but it's his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That's one of those verses that you might want to underline in your Bible. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, then they will know that what I'm speaking is not of my own authority. They're seeking glory for themselves, and they are pursuing their own will, not God's will. And then Jesus says, if you're seeking to do God's will, you'll recognize teaching that's from God. And implied is the opposite. If you are not seeking God's will, but seeking your own will, you will not be able to recognize teaching that is from God. Think about that. If you're seeking to know God, to hear from God, you do not need some sort of achievement or standard or standing, but you need to submit your will to his. The battle of your will is the prerequisite to hearing from God in the person of Jesus. This is why Christians often use the word surrender to describe coming to faith in Jesus. We surrender to God. What kind of things do we surrender? We surrender our will. I have big plans for my life. Surrender. <laughs> I have fantastic ideas that I want to enact. Surrender. I will do anything at any time, anywhere for this one particular person that I love. 
surrender. I have an ethical and moral priorities that are uniquely important to me, and they will drive the way that I run my life. Surrender. I am worthy. I'm worthy of recognition. I'm worthy of human praise. I work hard. I do well at my job. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a big deal. Surrender. Most of those are good things, powerful things. But you can't, but you, excuse me, but you can pursue generally noble things in your life and never hear from God. And this is what the Jews are doing. They're general, I mean, they're religious seeking people. They're generally pursuing the things that they're supposed to pursue. But they can't recognize God in their very midst because their will is not to do ultimately God's will. It's to pursue their own will. But if you surrender your glory, and if you surrender your will, you begin to recognize his voice. As people speak the truths of his word, the Bible, as you begin to experience how the spirit of God gives you ears to hear you appreciate how it points you to Jesus, and in doing so, you have life in him. So there's a certain sense in which this type of surrender is a faith commitment. And the words of Jesus, then, are not just something that you can look from the outside and examine their qualities and find their greatest value and what they mean to you and we can talk about what they mean to me as an outsider looking in. In fact, the words of Jesus can't actually be appreciated, fully heard or understood without first and already being on the inside. Having already sought to do God's will without maybe even knowing how to evaluate God's will. But the disposition and the motive is there, and then God fills in the void with the person of his son and works out what his will is expressed in your life to be. When you assess it from the inside, then you find Jesus' words are really given from the Father, that he rests not on his own authority, but that he speaks the very words of God. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you have life in his name. Pursuing your will and seeking your glory will only lead to unbelief. But pursuing God's will and seeking God's glory is the beginning of belief. And so how about you? Many of you desire to hear from God. You want to see him more clearly. You want to have a unique nearness to him. And so the question becomes, have you surrendered your glory to him? Or perhaps you're still holding out. Holding out that more and more of us will heap recognition upon you. Or perhaps you're like so many of us. Perhaps you're like me at times, who has willingly laid down 
and surrender my pursuit of human praise only to pick it back up again. (laughs) And the struggle of ongoing desire for human praise is ever upon us. In either case, you need to know this, that there is an all-powerful God in heaven who is infinitely more glorious than you are. (laughs) But he loves you. And no amount of human praise can hold a candle to receiving the love that God himself offers to you. Have you surrendered? Have you surrendered your will to start to pursue God's will? You might not even know what that is, but it's a disposition. His will generally is to grow you into a faithful man or woman, a stalwart for his gospel, to have you trust in him and have that trust resting in him, to have your confidence for the forgiveness of your sins placed on the cross of his son Jesus. His will for you is to make you holy. His will and his work in you is that you believe in his son. And there are a lot of people claiming a lot of things about Jesus and about things that will be life-changing for you, and you never know which ones are from God or which ones will come alive in you, which ones will point you to Jesus, God's Son, if you aren't seeking to do His will. And this requires surrendering your own. Pursuing your will and seeking your glory will always lead to unbelief. But pursuing God's will Seeking his glory is the beginning of belief. I close this morning by giving an example of a prayer of humble surrender. This prayer is attributed to a Muslim convert to Christ who in his conversion saw the reality that his glory needed to yield to God's glory. And his will needed to yield to God's will. And so he writes, O God, I am Mustafa the tailor, and I work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. O God, you are the needle, and I am the thread. I am attached to you and I follow you. When the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so that it can be put back in the right place. Oh God, help me to follow you wherever you lead me. For I am really only Mustafa the tailor and I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. Please pray with me. Father, in these moments, we recognize that your spirit might be convicting us to surrender or to surrender afresh. God, we know that to surrender means that we lay down before you and give up our own pursuit. And in this case, our pursuit of recognition and praise. 
our pursuit of self-determination. We surrender them to you. And in their place, we ask that you would continue to fill us with such a profound vision of your son Jesus to know your will, to be encouraged by his leading, to find our greatest rest, our greatest trust, our greatest confidence, and our greatest joy in him. We know you promised to do this, and by doing so, to give us life. And so we ask for it now, in his name. Amen.